This is a recording of a live Resolution Foundation event. We hope you find it some combination of interesting or entertaining. To read the research and access the event slides referenced in this episode, please visit the events section of our website. Uh, hello everyone, uh, a very uh, warm welcome on this fine evening to uh, a decent turnout in the room and to lots, lots more of you uh, online. Uh, thank you for joining us. I'm Gavin Kelly. I'm the chairman of the Resolution Foundation. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to this event tonight. Uh, it's an important one for us at the Foundation. I think for two, two standout reasons for me. Uh, one is that this topic, where we've kind of used uh, slightly cheesy alliteration, platforms to promotions, is, is essential in the title. Uh, this topic is, is important because I think we all know, any, all of us who work around jobs market type issues in any way, know that the state of the labour market and the support for young people, especially uh, for non-graduates, is, uh, is an important moment at the mo important topic at the moment. We all know that the nature of young people's entry into the jobs market is a really important factor which kind of helps in some ways determine their trajectory quite far into the future. It really matters, the state of the economy and the labour market when you join uh, uh, the jobs market and economic crises are a tough time to join. And that is a difficult thing to say because we've had quite a few of them. We've kind of lurched, if I look back, just over a decade from, you know, with the financial crisis to a Brexit crisis, uh, then on a pandemic and the cost of living crisis, there's been quite a lot going on and it's been a really challenging time to join uh, the labour market. And I think even before we had those shocks, we knew that this country was quite a tough country, a tough jobs market for lots of young people to actually transition into work. I don't think historically we've done brilliantly at providing advice and support. It's been a kind of problematic policy area in lots of ways that lots of different governments of different persuasions have struggled with. Um, and I think that remains the case today. But I think that risk sounding gloomy. I think there's also kind of an optimistic note to strike, which I'm hoping our speakers are going to kind of like build on, which is that despite that problematic history, if you like, and despite the challenging nature of our jobs market today, uh, we've never had so much potential to improve the sorts of insights, the sorts of support that we offer young people. We have data available about how our labour market performs, which we can do all sorts of clever things with, that simply was not available uh, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, you know, and more, when the likes of me were sort of filled in eight questions at my secondary school and was told that I was definitely going to be a fireman. It turned out that over half of all the boys in my year were told they were going to be firemen. So uh, things have, have moved on in terms of how we think about supporting people since then. So it, this is a really important topic and it's a really timely moment to, to think about it and hopefully there's things, uh, optimistic things we can th talk about uh, in our discussion. So that's one reason. The second reason why I think I'm excited about tonight is because it's going to be slightly different to a normal Resolution Foundation event in some ways. Now, I'm imagining that some of you have probably been to events before and the general kind of way they roll is that a, a clever analyst stands up and gives you slides and analysis about this, a problem and you're going to get that tonight. Uh, so you'll get your fix of, of that tonight. But normally we, we then, either from someone from the foundation or a minister or a shadow minister will stand up and give you policy solutions. We'll give you a big slab of this is the policy answer to this problem. That's generally how things work. And tonight is not going to be like that. We're going to go from analysis into what kind of innovation through social entrepreneurs and through social investment could we, could we see civil society 
sort of own and lead on to try and improve things. So it's not a policy-centred discussion, it's more of an innovation and civil society through social entrepreneurship discussion, which I think is exciting because, uh, and I say this as someone who spent a lot of time in think tanks, there is more to life than producing reports with policy solutions uh, aimed at civil servants and others, important though they may be. Uh, but it's also trying things out in the real world and backing people with smart ideas. And that's the sort of nature of, of tonight's discussion. And that is important because we at the Foundation have uh, got a programme of work that some of you may have heard us talk about before called the Worker Tech Programme, which is basically us and a, a coalition of other foundations who are share the same values and objectives in some way, who have come together to put some resource into a fund that we use to invest in ventures that we think will improve the prospects of low-paid or insecure workers in some form or another. And that WorkTech uh, programme has been up and running for a bit. Two of the vet people you're going to hear from tonight are people that we've supported, so we'll be introducing them in a minute. And one of the other speakers we're going to hear from tonight is a partner uh, in that process. So this is very much part of a kind of uh, move into the world of backing people with real ideas for improving living standards, which is part of our overall objective. So uh, that is exciting uh, for me and for other colleagues here. If you want to know more about WorkerTech, then we have people here in the room, Louise and Emma, who are, who are waving uh, on cue, who can tell you uh, about it, and indeed I can too. So please do feel free to ask if you're here or to email if you are watching somewhere else. Right. That is, uh, I think, enough for me. I'm going to introduce our panel. We're going to first hear from uh, Kathleen Hedahan, uh, who was one of the Resolution Foundation's senior researchers and policy analysts. Um, and Kathleen, as I say, will be making sure you get your fix of slides. Uh, then we're going to hear from Claudine Adiemi, who is the chief executive and founder of Career Ear. Claudine has her merch on. Uh, so, um, And Claudine, it says here, is a social entrepreneur, which I knew, and is also a lawyer. And you don't often see those two things in the same sentence. Former lawyer now. Former lawyer. <laughs> so that is exciting. And then we're going to hear from Gaia Faso, who's the chief executive and founder of Ikigai Data. Again, someone that we've uh, backed through our WorkerTech uh, programme. And then we're going to hear from Helen uh, Garoni, who is director of ventures at UFI Vocational Tech. Uh, who, and for you, you probably know UFI, but possibly if you don't, they're a social investor who backs, amongst other things, early stage technology companies. They focus overwhelmingly on vocational skills and the future of work. Uh, so that is who is speaking. We're delighted to have you all here. I should also say that you, you can ask questions through Slido. I'm sure most of you, two and a half years on, have used Slido. It's, it's the way of the world. And if you are a tweeter, the, what the, we have a hashtag, it is career tech, which is fitting, and we will make sure to, we have time to hear some questions from you, uh, both in the room and at home. And that is that. So Kathleen, over to you. Okay. Great. Excellent. Well, thanks everyone for having me. Um, as Gavin said, I'm just going to kick off with a few of the RF classic uh, analytical charts. Um, and I think it's probably worth saying that, you know, on the surface, we tend to think that the picture for the youth employment is relatively bright. Um, employment rates among both students and non-full-time students, shown in the blue and red lines respectively, um, has recovered since the pandemic. 
Um, actually, the unemployment rate among young people is lower than it was before the pandemic. So there's you know, all these sorts of sighs of relief and rounds of applause among policymakers and analysts and commentators. But obviously, you know, the elephant in the room is that there's much more than just having a job. It's the quality of the job you have that really matters. And I think when it comes to these measures, there's obviously a bit more to be desired, and that's long been the case. Um, so just kicking off, you know, it's worth saying that young people, and particularly young non-graduates, are heavily disproportionately represented in lower-paid sectors. Oops, sorry, uh, lower-paid sectors like retail and hospitality. So specifically, what this chart shows is that about 26% of young, so 18 to 29-year-old non-graduates, currently work in either retail or food and drink services. <laughs> That's about twice the proportion of the overall population working in those sectors. So again, we just tend to see them in lower-paid sectors. Um, also, it just takes a little bit longer for people to find their feet in the labor market, and that's a trend that's become worse for non-graduates over time. So this chart shows the proportion of young people who've been out of full-time education for a year, but have still never had any job. And that was about 4% of non-graduates in the mid-1990s, and it's risen to just over 10% today. So again, just like an indicator of you're not necessarily going to find yourself in the best paid sector um, on average, and you're also going to take a little bit longer to find a job. Um, we also know that on a lot of measures, graduates and non-graduates in particular, but young people in general, tend to work in sort of insecure patterns of work. That's long been a thing. You know, we know the story about students working on flexible contracts so they can make some money around their study. But actually, there's been a concerted increase in the share of young people, and in particular, young non-graduates outside of education, working on things like zero hours contracts as temporary agency workers, short hours contracts, etc. So what this chart shows is that the proportion of young people overall working on a zero hours contract has doubled, almost doubled since 2013 to now, um, rising from about 5 to 10%. But actually, if you add on top of that, the 5% of young people who are in agency work, the 7% of young people who are on temporary contracts in general, you get to a much bigger picture of rising insecurity among young people, and in particular, among young non-graduates. We also know that you know, the background that you have, you know, what your parents did, is going to influence what you go on to do. So this chart shows the proportion of graduates and non-graduates who work in a lower paid occupation, depending on the type of job their parent had when they were a child. And the big picture takeaway is, you know, unsurprisingly, non-graduates are much more likely than graduates to work in a lower paid occupation. But actually, even among non-graduates, the position your parents were in when you were wrong, young really does dictate where you go on to go. So about 36% of young non-graduates whose parents were in a high-paid job still find themselves in a lower-paid job. However, half of all non-graduates whose parents were in a lower-paid job find themselves in a lower-paid job once they move into the labor market and have been in there for quite a while. So again, it's just a picture of it's a tough market and also where you come from still really heavily dictates where you go on to. Now, as Gavin said, we do know that people are changing jobs a little bit more than they were um, in the past. It's a slight increase. We're not where, back where we were in the 1990s, but this matters because we know that by changing a job, that is how young people tend to improve their circumstances and quite often move on to better levels of pay. I think there's been this big narrative about, you know, oh, millennials and young people, they change jobs all the time. And actually we found that that 
dipped quite a bit in the wake of the financial crisis, and the proportion of young people each quarter who voluntarily changed jobs has declined. Now, obviously, it tanked in COVID. It's coming up again, and we're now in the midst of a really tight labor market, and there's huge numbers of vacancies. But these vacancies tend to be a lot, very much concentrated, well, slightly concentrated for, for young non-grads in those sort of lower-paid sectors. So this is kind of represents an opportunity for us. You know, people are moving jobs once again. We have a tight labor market. Can we make the most of it and help young people move into better jobs rather than just churning between lower-paid sectors? And finally, we know that you know, a lot, in the past, a lot of the jobs that young people tend to move into are jobs that offer less training than they did in the past. So this chart just shows the proportion of people who report having work-related training in the past three months. And what you want to focus on here is the solid red line, which shows the proportion of younger non-graduates who've had training recently. And obviously, like all other training rates, it's dipped quite a bit since the early 2000s. Um, but the big picture, too, is that it's just consistently been lower than it has been for graduates either older than them or graduates of the same age. So just making the point that quite often they don't get the type of the support that they need in work to be able to then progress or move on to a better job. So obviously, this speaks to the importance of helping people get you know, careers advice right at the start or get careers advice after they've already left in the labor, after they've already left education, but are in the early stages of their career and they're already in the labor market. I'm going to try and do my best at this. This is a long-standing challenge. <laughs> so uh, 1902 Education Act, uh, they did create juvenile employment services, and it actually was a mechanism to give school leavers a good, you know, a good bit of advice and, where appropriate, refer them to the Juvenile Division of Labor Exchanges, which I've somehow managed to find a photo of. There was only like one that, that really kind of was clear, so there we go. Uh, from the 1940s to the 1970s, you had something called the Youth Employment Service. I mean, essentially, very common procedure where they would take all school leavers. The guarantee was to give them sort of like a one, one-to-one -one chat, sort of like an interview, and then you'd provide some guidance. Doing a little bit of digging, it seems like they did spend a large proportion of their time just handing out national insurance cards, but it was something that was trying to be a uh, universal service. Uh, we get to the 1980s, and I think careers advice was really challenged on two fronts. On the one hand, you know, you had to sort of divide your advice between the fact that between the young people who were increasingly staying on in education and those who were leaving education, and then the big issue was how on earth do you provide really helpful careers advice in the midst of a labor market that's absolutely tanked and has sky-high unemployment. So the debate was a little bit less about how do we provide the best careers advice and more about, oh, what do we do about the fact that we have these sort of obligatory work in training schemes like the youth and training with the like the youth training scheme that caused a fair bit of fuss um, among young people at the time. Uh, 1990s careers advice was privatized but each local authority had to offer at least one service. Late 1990s early 2000s we have connections which is a really interesting service focused on young people offering a wide array of services and increasingly focused on young people who were sort of most at risk of falling into long-term long unemployment. Um, from 2011, Connections was axed and um, the bulk of responsibility for careers advice was pushed to schools and for young people who were already out of education, they had the National Career Service. I think like, one of the big things to remember is that this isn't just an administrative change, it's actually like a funding change as well. So by axing connections, they saved about 200 million a year. 
the National Career Service, which came in, is an all-age program. It was funded to the tune of a little over 100 million a year, and it was all age. So obviously, that's a lot less money directed, you know, specifically to young people who are out of education. And the fact that careers advice for people who were in education was, you know, pretty much relegated to schools was a little bit difficult in an era of school funding cuts. Um, more recently, we've had the introduction of the Careers and Enterprise Company, which works with schools and employers to try and bring everyone together and create careers hubs. Doesn't necessarily provide services itself, but is sort of that function of kind of trying to make sure that good careers advice is embedded um, across schools and colleges. Now, in the pandemic, we've had like a whole host of programs that have come up as part of the. Um, Plan for jobs, I won't go through every one, but you've got things like sector-based work academies, which allow people to move into particular sectors and get, you know, to actually try and retrain a little bit. You've got youth hubs, which aim to like bring young people, um, employers, uh, and work coaches together. And you've got Kickstart, which was sort of a, a job subsidy scheme, which will soon be drawing to an end. Um, so I obviously didn't cover that in 60 seconds. I've expanded quite a bit. Um, but I think the big picture is, you know, we've had more than a century of trying. But I think there's some really key shortfalls that remain. Um, one, you tend to get really patchy levels of career support. Quite often it might you know, determine whether or not your school or college is part of a career hub. Also just might determine on sort of the person at your school or college who's responsible for careers. Um, Quite often, you know, there's complaints about, you know, the advice lacks a lot of occupational specificity. Um, people don't necessarily know, you know, the outcomes that they might get having done a particular course, what career they might go on to, what that career might actually look like in terms of pay and opportunities. Um, quite often, you know, getting that advice is based on self-referrals, which means that sometimes the people who would benefit most tend to miss out on it. Um, it you know, there's been lots of complaints that it comes too late. So after you've you know, made your course choices at A-level. Um, and speaking to Gavin's example about you know, all the, you know, half the boys being suggested they become firemen, it does quite often uh, reinforce gender divides in the labor market. Um, for young people outside of education, I think there's something of a fragmented landscape. Um, when they go to a job center, if that's where they're going to get their careers advice, quite often they might have sort of like a work first approach. So rather than encouraging someone to go back to education or to retrain, quite often, not universally, but the, the priority will be to get someone into a job. And there's sort of few resources to provide intensive help with job progression and career change. And overall, lower levels of funding are lower than they once were um, for young non-graduates specifically. Um, so all that to say that you know there's been, lot, been long-standing challenges in the labor market, and they certainly haven't evaporated for young people. And I think you know to improve, we really need to take advantage of the fact that we've seen a huge transformation in the data landscape, and there's a lot of information that we could be providing to young people. So looking back a hundred years, are we going to be providing transformative level levels of careers advice? And I hope the answer will be yes. <laughs> and that's it for me. Very good. Thank you, Tafli. Um, that covered, covered an awful lot of ground and it brought back memories of work, my first job working on connections <laughs> a long time ago in the government, uh, but that's, that's for later. Uh, Claudine, take that was a, an overview of the past, give us a sense of, where, of what you do and what the future might look like. 
Sure. Um, so, good evening, everyone. Uh, hopefully, you can hear me properly. Yep. Um, I'm the founder and CEO of Career Ear, as Gavin has mentioned. Uh, at Career Ear, we have a vision of the world where everyone, regardless of their background, um, has the opportunity to really achieve their full career potential. And so, our mission is to really make sure that everyone has access to quality career advice, guidance, and information, as, as well as great opportunities to learn and work. And so, what we're doing is building the ultimate digital career support. Uh, platform for overlooked talent specifically and we work with learning institutions, training providers, uh, community organisations to really support the groups that they work with and then we also partner with employers to help them hire talent that they might otherwise overlook. And the way we do this is through a number of tools that are brought together in our online platform. And so that's our career detector tool, which really helps people to discover and learn about different career options, uh, skills assessment chatbots, which help people to understand their soft skills, um, transferable fusion skills, whatever, whatever you choose to call it. Um, community Q&A, where people can ask career-related uh, questions to employees across a range of different industries, and then also through the events, programs, courses, job opportunities that we share from our partner organisations. Now, before I share some more detail about our solution, um, Gavin did ask me to speak about some of the barriers that young people face in securing good work and how these, diff how these affect different groups, um, and also kind of diving in a little bit into what works to support people into better jobs. So um, I was reflecting on this and the starting point for me is that it does, the problem doesn't actually sit with young people. The problem is kind of more macro and it's kind of with the system. So for us at Career our members are non-graduates, many of whom have only completed compulsory education. And time and again, we see that young people haven't been supported adequately to prepare for work, even at the most basic levels. So kind of uh, thinking about communication skills, particularly writing. Um, CV writing, um, if they even have a CV at all, interview skills and so on. And I think in a society where there remains an overarching traditional approach to recruitment, where for good work, regardless of whichever kind of recruitment tools that, that you know, really match you with, with talent, Recruit, uh, recruiters and employers are still expecting to be able to um, really assess candidates through a number of different interviews, understand a candidate's work history, education history and so on. And so if the young people aren't being prepared to go through those processes um, successfully, then they are going to struggle to secure good work. And so they're being let down by the education system, which is improving. So um, every school now has to have a careers advisor and has to do activity that aligns with Gatsby benchmarks and so on. But it's still very, very far off the pace um, when you compare it to what's needed in industry. And typically the schools that struggle to keep up are those that um, are in the most deprived areas. And so the most marginalized students are therefore the most affected. And then if we take a look at employers, I believe that employers are still taking um, too traditional approach to hiring um, to really support young people into good work. And so I think that we really need to kind of transition to hiring for potential. Um, so yesterday, uh, Career Air launched our research on the definition of a skill and proposed a brand new definition. You can go to our website if you're interested in um, having a look at our report. But for us, if our de definition is adopted by employers, it would really support them to hire for potential rather than um, evidencing skills acquired through learning, practice and experience and putting to action. And this is really important because many of these young people 
just haven't really had real opportunities to put their skills into action and really prove their capabilities before. And so this doesn't mean that they won't be able to add value to an organisation, um, but it does mean that employers are therefore missing out on really fantastic talent by not taking a more forward thinking approach and thinking about the potential value um, of young people. We've also found that job specifications is an area that presents a real barrier to young people. So um, employers typically, in my view, <laughs> don't often accurately express and define what they're looking for. Um, and actually, it becomes very apparent when you start analysing the data sets that are created by scraping job ads. Um, and a fa failure to create accurate, and easy to understand, inclusive job ads exclude marginalised groups who, again, have that potential to perform well and excel over time, but um, are, are overlooked. And sitting above all of this are socioeconomic factors that just can't be ignored, so things like transport poverty, um, the impact of the digital divide. Um, so I think there's a real perception that young people are kind of the digital future and really kind of um, honest and advanced when it comes to technology. Um, majority of them have a smartphone but you would be surprised how many don't have a proper device like a laptop or a tablet um, and so i think ofcom found that up to 1.8 million children don't have those devices which in this day and age it, are necessities now not luxuries and that means that the digital skills they need to uh, to work um, in in kind of work and business context um, even down to kind of just writing a, a simple email aren't actually things that they've had to do before and we've had that experience with working with young people where they're kind of like this is my first formal email I've ever had to write um, and those small things are just really holding them back from being able to um, really really thrive in, in, in work. And then on top of that, with the rise of cost, the rising cost of living, these challenges are going to get worse, right? So the other day I was speaking to one of our members and she was explaining that she's got a subscription um, to a learning platform and was saying that she's going to have to cancel it so that she can put money on her gas meter. And so it's those types of challenges that young people are, are facing, which are, again, going to keep holding them back from securing really good work. Um, so what does good support look like? Um, so in our view, um, real human support is still going to be necessary. But we think that technology like ours can power providers to scale that support and deepen their impact. So, for example, if you imagine a community organisation delivering a six-week employability programme, our platform can complement the uh, programme by providing access to each participant to the tools that we have that leverage labour market information data to provide easily digestible career path options based on their skills and interests and enabling them to learn more about these career paths and tapping into our community of industry experts as well to gain real insights um, from, uh, from real people and um, through Q&A forums. Um, alternatively, if you picture a training provider delivering a welfare to work programme, um, they may wish to um, uh, embed our platform into their onboarding process. And through that, participants will be able to use our platform to kind of share their challenges, express their interests um, from industries to um, uh, different kind of roles, um, understand their skills through our sales assessment chatbots and really start building out their career plans and using the recommendations generated by our platform. And what this means is that when they're kind of in their one-to-ones with their employment coaches, the value of those sessions can really be maximised so that they can immediately start focusing on addressing the needs from the data that's been uh, shared through our platform already. And it's important that experiences that use technology are also personalised in order to really engage young people. So I know that um, you shared national um, career service as a, as a tool, and it's just not something that attracts many young people, unfortunately. And so it's really important that we're thinking um, about the, the user interaction when um, developing these, these tools as well. 
Um, and then ultimately, I think that um, government is also going to be needed to step in. I know it seems like we've kind of lost faith in, in their ability to kind of step in and, and set policy that really um, has an impact in this area. But um, Kathleen mentioned schemes like Kickstart, which, which we were involved in as a delivery partner. These schemes highly incentivize employers to take on um, young people, that one in particular, young people who were on universal credit. Um, the scheme largely failed in terms of its targets, um, but thousands of young people got opportunities they would never have had before, um, which is incredible for those individuals. And many of them have gone into permanent roles and full-time work um, and good quality work. But I think part of the piece that was missed by that as well was the number of employers that took part in that scheme that would have never thought about hiring young people. And so we worked with a number of SMEs who now are alive to the fact that young people can bring significant value to their businesses. And so even preparing for this session, I thought, actually, what if we could have a policy that um, SMEs with, say, five to 50 um, employees all had an opportunity to have one fully funded young person in their business um, that could support up to 100,000 young people every single year and open them the, the mindsets of, of employers who are otherwise closed off to supporting um, young people and creating these opportunities for them to build their knowledge and experience. So, yeah, that's just some of the th thinking that I've been doing on, on this. Um, I think there's a lot of work to be done and innovators like myself and Guy, who you'll hear from, are working on parts of the problem. But I think we really need more innovators, employers, um, training providers, uh, all stakeholders to, to collaborate. So definitely get in touch if anyone wants to speak to me more about this. Thanks. Fantastic. Thank you, Jordan. And we definitely haven't given up on policy. We just, <laughs> just to be clear, but we, uh, that would be, that, that would put us out of business. But, um, but we are very much of the view that on its own, it's not enough. Uh, Gaia, tell us what your what your approach is. Thank you, Gavin. Uh, nice to meet everyone. Thanks for um, coming both online and offline. Um, so at Ikigai Data, we partner with education institutions to provide their students and alumni bespoke career guidance uh, on, on an app that speaks to them. Um, and in turn, we use the data to help them boost recruitment with more innovative and bespoke curriculum and career services provision. So this is very much looking at what the data about student outcomes, aspirations, needs, interests, skills can tell us in order for us to actually continue building good career advice, but also good curriculums, which is fundamental in the changing world of learning. Um, Having spent quite a bit of time with young people, we work with 16 to 26 year olds, um, we uh, understood that there's at least four things that they mostly look out for when wanting good fitting career advice. Um, the first one is for them to reach some level of clarity about who they are, what are they interested in, what are they really good at? Notwithstanding not having any work experience, but actually we speak to some brilliant, brilliant young people who've been leading programs within their school um, as volunteers who already have some internship experience or at university who are part of clubs and societies with high levels of responsibility. Those are all work-ready um, activities that equip them with vast amounts of skills that actually they don't really think about when you actually ask them. What are your skills? So we really need to create a space for them to tap into who they are, what they do, what their skills and passion and aspirations are, which requires a little bit of trust building. The second thing that they really need um, and want is information. Like so Claudine, you talked about labor market insights. They really need to understand how does this matter to me? 
what are the jobs out there? I might now have clarity around the skills I've got, but there's certain jobs that I don't know about because back to some of the stuff that you were talking about, Kathleen, I only know what I know. I only know what's in my network. I only know what my friends and family do. Um, ask me when I started my career, I didn't know what the job of a futurist or facilitator were, and now actually they're really well-paying jobs. Um, I would never have, con I might have considered them if I knew about it. So information about the labor market that is actually relevant and interesting for them is definitely high up in the priority list. Um, thirdly, networks, which I think Claudine, you're also attacking with career years, sort of building networks of mentors and students who um, between themselves can provide each other advice, but also introductions crucially, and this is very important for disadvantaged groups. Um, and, and finally, we call it a playground. But it's a place where you can go and just have a go at it. Try it out. Understand for real what your skills are. Understand for real what that jobs look like. Um, and this is something that we're cooking something really interested in that um, uh, we'll, we'll be telling you in the coming months. Um, but the, the one issue with fixing the career service framework in light of all of the uh, innovations and initiatives that have already been uh, taken to date is that Actually, there's been very little voice of the individual student in, in this, I think. Um, if we were to do a poll here about how many people actually went to private school, I bet you there'd be quite a few. Um, people in the um, innovation, decision-making seats still actually do come from a specific niche of society um, and, and perhaps are not as well connected to the realities of some of the students. So the bet that, and, and this by the way compounds the, the issue even further, the, the, the latest study around the uh, longitudinal education outcomes reveals that, um, similar to some of the stats that you produced Kathleen, um, the kids who are on free school meals are three times more likely to be on unemployment benefits by the age of 30. So um, many years after they leave education. Um, so. The, our approach is actually to put the data, the information in the hands of the young people and let them make the best decision for themselves, given a better amount and more bespoke uh, information about who they are, what their skills are, what their aspirations are. And we follow the framework of Ikigai, which is um, uh, looking at uh, crystallizing for yourself what you're good at, what you really love, what the world of work needs and where the world is going. Um, we rolled out a career discovery series and we run three of them working with 16 to 26 years old um, that creates a space and a network for the young people to start to tap into some of those things and we build tools on the back of that that can help them continue this exploration over time. Um, the, 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 the sign-ups are live, by the way, if anybody's interested or knows of 16 to 26 years old, they can take place in the next career discovery series. Um, the other thing that um, we, we realized is that when working with um, education um, clients, if the student is onboarded on a tool, a platform, at the point of signing up for their curriculum, it can really help them make better decisions about what they study and therefore where they go on to later down the line as well. There's many courses that you need to choose um, when you're actually enrolling in a, in a degree or a certificate that you somehow sort of are blinded in, in, in understanding how, how, how to go about choosing them. Um, this can also um, help us get there earlier. Like you were saying, Kathleen, we need to get there earlier. We also work with a secondary school in London, so we're working with year 10 students even. And, and again, it's not about career education, it's about career wellness. And you need to embed an understanding of career 
decision making from earlier on and how it impacts education choices. Um, but it can also, if, if, if it stays with the student over time after they graduate um, or they leave studying and they start um, work, it can help that service be less patchy but really always available in their hands and, and, and actually service those that really need it when eventually they might be out of work or in between jobs um, because of COVID or other shocks. Um, and crucially, that data that then comes back in the hands of the institutions because it's data about their students and alumni can again inform uh, bespoke uh, career interventions, but also better curriculum provision over time, new courses and better courses. Our, our bet is on data because it's a double-edged sword. So it's, it's helping the individual have better access to a more bespoke career guidance, but it's also helping the institutions then improve their services. Um, some of the people that we work with in the career discovery series take Ava. She um, is really good at writing. She really loves theater. She's uh, in her um, final year of, of high school. She's got no clue where to go. She thinks she's going to go and do a degree in biology. It's purely because her parents say that's the safe choice for you and you, you're kind of good at biology and this is a good job. Uh, she went to the career discovery series and um, she learned about many other jobs that actually have the characteristics of the things that she likes which are high paying and, uh, and on the rise like facilitator or a change management consultant um, that she never knew about and then found the, the, the guts to have that conversation with her parents and say actually I think I don't want to do biology, I want to do English literature and I think that there's you know, a pathway for me to go into a, a, an interesting career from here nonetheless. Um, and similarly, um, a further education student that we work with who um, was very, very interested in, in playing video games, he thought he was going to join his parents' construction, father's construction business, but then actually realized that um, as he started doing some coding because of the passion in video games, that could be something that he could do by testing it out with a bootcamp whilst he was still in school, and therefore start to uh, consider a career in a much, much higher paying job than what he'd set his eyes to. And so confidence and awareness, confidence in your skills and awareness about the labor market really, really play a role in um, um, sort of widening opportunities and, 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 and rising aspirations for these young people that we work with. So just uh, to conclude, am, am I, uh, you okay? do I have a minute? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> this is nothing new. So we talked about Gatsby standards, they've been around for some time, they ask for sort of bespoke career guidance and continuous career guidance. Um, there's been studies by the Department for Education from 2017 asking for data-driven uh, career guidance for young people, the informed choice report. There's currently a report in the House of Lords that asks again for uh, skills for young people, that asks for bespoke guidance for young people. So it's nothing new. Uh, the complexity is in understanding how to analyze and package this data in a way in which it's enticing and interesting for the young person, but also that it starts to make sense not to where the world of work is today, labor market insights, but where it's going. So this is a lot of work that we're doing now in starting to understand trending skills and trending jobs. Gerald in the audience is our data scientist and he's very much in charge of this. We're using the same technology that guides your Google Maps A to B. Uh, destination um, to actually apply that to uh, your career decisions. It requires investments, it requires interaction with the user, it requires increasing data sets in order to start to build clusters of skills, of emerging skills and emerging jobs that maintain that advice up to date and bespoke and interesting and important for the young person who has access to it. 
um, so that ultimately we're not going to be in a position in which the current 25% of students who tell us, I don't know what to do when I grow up, now have an absolutely clear idea about it, but they can tell you, I still don't know what to do, but I do know that this is what I'm really good at, this is what I'm interested in, and I understand there's a job market out there that matches this. Because we're all going to change careers five times in our course of our life, and so that understanding of who you are and where the world of work is going is what we need in order to uh, start and stay in better jobs. Thank you so much, so much in that brilliant. Uh, Helen, straight over to you. Okay, thanks. You're going to use a few slides, I think. I am. Is that working? Yeah, great. Right. So uh, UFI is building a portfolio of about 20 ventures that invest in this space, essentially uh, supporting vocational training technology businesses that we think can reach uh, you know, a significant number of people, are scalable, uh, and, and so that's what we're doing. So we're investing in uh, businesses that basically support individuals in work, support individuals to understand who they are, and uh, find work and find pathways to various careers, and also support businesses to become essentially more efficient and more successful themselves. So I've been asked to talk about the way we look at uh, barriers, um, essentially the barriers to securing good work. And, and this is how I tend to think about them. Um, essentially, young people understanding the pathways into a, into a job. So, you know, really chiming what my colleagues were saying in terms of understanding who they are, what they're good at, um, and seeing a, a pathway for them to achieve um, the jobs that they're looking for. The availability of upskilling, so how available um, and uh, signposted is uh, upskilling to that young person's life. It is often, I think, quite difficult to find. Um, the right peer group support, you know, if you've got parents at home or family and friends that are discussing career paths and where, you know, what, what you're good at, where you should be going, I think it's a lot easier to, to work out that trajectory. Uh, role models to aspire to, I think you know, we all need to see in careers that we're looking at that we would fit in, um, that uh, people that have the same um, educational sort of attainment, for example, um, have achieved these, have, have got into these positions and that, you know, it is worth the sort of uh, the, the push, I guess, to putting yourself on the line and, and, and making an application for a job. I think so much of this comes down to the psychology of uh, careers, uh, a confidence really that it is appropriate for an individual to, to look at a, a particular career um, and to have the confidence to um, overcome the barriers that are, that are in the way. And of course, financial barriers too. Um, you know, it, it, uh, I think if you, if you have a more secure financial background, you can take more risks when it comes to careers, and, and that's an important barrier, I think. So these are the businesses that we've invested in at UFI and um, solutions that we've seen working in this area. They are early stage businesses, so they will not all of them be very successful, but um, they are at different stages and a lot of them are, are achieving success. So uh, Kindly supports the um, education workers, essentially, um, to, uh, to um, accredit their, the skills that they have 
um, and to, to upskill while they're on the job. Learnably increases um, fair access or access to all for uh, learning at work. And essentially, they uh, provide a tool that 95% of the workforce in any particular organisation or even more can get access to. So this is really providing uh, you know, a huge amount of access. Sonic Jobs um, is improving the uh, job quality and progression um, at work in the gig economy. Uh, Learning Labs is removing barriers to employment for people who have low literacy, so often don't have English as a first language. So they're providing uh, language lessons in both schools and uh, colleges, um, and are also going into the workplace as well. Body Swaps uh, is a really interesting one. So they provide soft skills training in a virtual reality world, essentially. So providing or mimicking that sort of one-on-one -on -one support that you'd get to give you feedback on how well you did, for example, in an interview. And a key part of what they do is, is to show you how you've performed and then you go back um, and try again. And it's, uh, it really is a, a huge lever, I think, uh, to progression and, and just building that confidence in difficult situations. Uh, Caps Lock helps remove financial barriers to cybersecurity training, so essentially providing the financing. Um, and the course to, to retrain, um, and we're seeing this is, you know, this is a really interesting area. Uh, SpringPod, the last uh, of our portfolio companies, and our most recent investment, um, and they are providing or improving job prospects, um, so uh, essentially providing good work experience and also information about the courses that are available um, in further education and higher education. So I think this, this is another area I've been asked to talk about. There is a, a need for new technology and more um, investment. And I've just highlighted a few areas where I see this playing a particularly sort of key role. Um, and one is, you know, continuing labour shortages continue to accentuate the skill gaps. More innovation is needed in upskilling, uh, particularly in, in further education and vocational uh, training. Um, we think there's a, a huge opportunity for more people and a wider range of people to secure knowledge work because of uh, diversity, equality, um, uh, training, and uh, essentially this being something that uh, the public <coughs> expect now. Um, and it also makes sense, I think, for, for businesses from a perspective of having difficulty in recruiting people. Uh, so there is definitely an opportunity there. But I think individuals need that support to uh, highlight this as a, an area that is of interest um, and that support to enable them to, uh, to, to make a move and, and, and to, to, to get into those careers. The social care sector, there's a massive skill shortage that I think everybody uh, is aware of and there's been a, a very limited investment in technology in this area. So I see this as a huge area for actually changing uh, the, the, the status quo changing uh, a, a big sort of societal problem um, and enabling or opening this up as a more attractive career for people. Um, and then another sort of theme is essentially upskilling for new jobs. There are jobs that are, will be created um, in the future that uh, people need to be upskilled for now. So technology, for example, to train people uh, in the in electric car sort of uh, manufacture, for example, uh, this is, a, this is a, a new area. So that's my presentation. <laughs> Thank you so much, Helen.
Right. So we uh, have a, a bit of time for questions, so we're going to come to you in a minute. Um, let me let me just start though by like, posing a question first, I guess, to both Claudine and, and Gaia to, to start with, which is, I think some people watching will sort of know that there's a national career service. They will have sensed from here listening to you that you that what it was offering wasn't the full package to put for different for different types of groups. But they probably I want I give them a clear sense of of what you think the shortcomings are that, that are that you can ha basically address in the sense that is it that they're they're using the right data but then they're just not making it bespoke engaging accessible to different groups or is it that actually it's just sort of behind the times in terms of providing young adults with the sort of labor market information they need to make the right choices so how do you see it claudine why don't you start um largely behind the times <laughs> um both in terms of your interaction the, the ui of the, and the experience of it um the uh, labour market information um, that it relies upon isn't regularly updated. Yeah. Um, and we absolutely need to move towards more hyper-localised labour market information, okay. um, which it, it doesn't It doesn't, it doesn't no. offer. So there's a kind of geography point, there's a timeliness point, as well as an engagement of different groups. Yeah, and I think particularly, I can speak to the, the groups that we tend to work with as well, there is a reluctance to engage with, engage with government-related services as well. Um, so people kind of link National Career Service with, say, the Job Centre and so on. And there's a, there's a stigma from, from those groups, from yeah, perspective. Yeah, that's interesting. Kaya, what about you? Yeah, plus one on, on, on all of that. There's been updates since we started monitoring. I think there's some brilliant information in it, but it just doesn't meet the young people where they're at. So, um, yeah, the UI. But also, you have to start from, again, what am I good at and what am I passionate about? And then from there, thread a line to jobs that I can look into. I'm not going to go and research a job that I never heard about. I can only research jobs that I sort of know something about or I heard in my network. But guess what? Those are not the ones that you really need to learn about. The ones you need to learn about are the ones you don't know. You don't know how to get there. And yet, we tell you you've got skills and interests that match them. So yeah. you've got to start from where you are. And unfortunately, the career service doesn't do that, but it's got really nice information otherwise. It's got information behind yeah. it, which is interesting. Yeah. Alan, did, did you want to come in on that? Um, I, I mean, I think it, it has to be uh, attractive and uh, something that uh, young people uh, engage with. And I think social media has a huge part to play in it. Um, that's, you know, I think much more, the user experience is much better for, for young people these days. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's definitely right. And Kathleen, just for you, I want to give us a read about where you think the labour market is going for, if you like, the non-graduate part of the younger, pop younger working population that we're talking about. Because I'm really intrigued by this slide showing an uptick in people moving around in the context of there not being a great amount of job, kind of job advice and support around. Do you, where, where do you think the labour market is actually going, given the kind of shortages that we keep reading about? Do you think there's going to be an increased demand because of increased mobility for the sorts of services that we've been hearing about today? Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I think one of the things we've seen in the past is that when people move jobs quite often, and young non-graduates in particular, there was a lot of churn. So, for example, from retail to hospitality and back, what have you. Um, but given the fact that we've had a pandemic, we have a lot of people who haven't moved and a lot of people who are entering the labor market for the first time. There's huge demand for services. And so I think it is incredibly important that they get that advice now and they can actually make the right move into a job that they're actually gonna like and be able to progress in. 
Yeah, totally. I think just on that point as well, so many young people, particularly at um, the age groups that um, Guy was talking about with the year 10s and so on, have been massively, massively left behind because of the pandemic, right? Yeah. And so they just didn't have access to any career support at all, even with what was mandated by, by sure. government um, for a good couple of years. So it's not just an education yeah. scarring effect, it's also a kind of advice yeah. deficit. You, do, you don't have the people coming in, you don't have those sure. interactions with mm. industry, so they've missed, out on, they've missed out on all of it. Yeah, but at that point, it doesn't the education scarring point is well, is well known, but at that point, often I don't think it regularly gets made. Okay, so we've got a few questions on Slido, but other people, we've got a mic, other people in the room who want to come in at any point? I'm keen to make sure. Yeah, okay. So, Carl, if you could bring the mic. We've got a lady there. And anyone else who wants to we tell us who you are? Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Charlotte J. Duncan, um, and I'm the CEO of the Entrepreneurs Club. Met both of you, so really good right. work and great to hear you got funding. Um, it's a selfish question, and it's just from the positions of both of the uh, the foundation and the venture on investing in um, social kind of impact organisations, where there is an uh, an overlapping kind of mission and organisations. Does that kind of put you off? Um, supporting new ventures in this space or is it that actually we know so much about this space that it strengthens the proposition for organizations looking for funding um, uh, to to roll out uh, kind of socially impact well education and, and labor market um, tech products where did you say you were from so entrepreneurs club uh, we're a social enterprise that improves diversity in tech great thank you Helen Joanna I didn't specifically sort of understand the overlap between the, the organisation and the, the mission of the social... Sorry. No, it should have been clearer. So um, as a fund yep. that's looking for innovative ideas that address the kind of labour market issues in, in whatever direction for young people, yep. um, if you have two ventures that have very similar missions and ways of working, yep. does that tend to divide your decision and put you off kind of supporting one venture over the other because of the competitiveness between them potentially, yep. or does it strengthen their case? I'm just really interested from a foundation and fund perspective. It's a really, really interesting question and it's something that we grapple with. Yep. Um, often it, it uh, strengthens our uh, interest in investing because we're seeing uh, competing businesses and it's really useful to work out the strengths and weaknesses of those two businesses and also it enables us to see that this is something you know if there are two businesses that are doing something similar there's clearly a problem that they are addressing um, and then uh, our ability to invest we have to be very careful because the portfolio companies that we invest in don't want us to disclose information about them to com competitors yeah. and it's something that we absolutely wouldn't do but they need absolute certainty on that so if there are two competing businesses, we've invested in one, we will often go to that business and say, this is, a, this is, a, this is an example of the type of business we're looking at. Do you, are you happy for us to take this further and consider investing? Are there other questions in the room before I go online? No, that, yes, we've got a lady in the middle here. Thanks. Yeah, hi. I'm Denise Hulley from Joseph Roundtree Foundation. Hello, Denise. And it's nice to see you in real life. see you, yeah. yeah. And I'm on the, the social investment team, so I'm going to ask a question, an investor-type question, if I may. Um, you've, this has been super interesting, and all of you have done a fantastic job of outlining the need um, and, you know, and the problems. And I guess what I'm wondering, though it wasn't clear to me, who, um, what the revenue model is and where the funding 
comes from? Yeah, that was is it is it government? You know, is it through the schools or NCS revenues, or is it employers, or is it actually the users, the young people, or maybe it's a mix? But yeah. So what? That's great. Any others in the room before we come back to the panel? There. No. Okay. Give us give us a kind of the, the pithy version of your revenue model. Yeah, super high level for us. It's employers, but also training providers as well. So um, yeah, supporting training providers the, participants. Um, so, um, people that kind of want run welfare to work programs and things like that. And for yeah, for us, the first clients are education uh, providers in higher and further education, and the budget holders are marketing because we give them data to provide um, to spot better um, populations of students who might be interested in their degrees, but also to then market new degrees based on the data that we've got about skills and, uh, and, and jobs. Um, and then obviously career services departments and alumni departments um, that directly support young people with uh, career um, decisions. Thank you. Um, we've had a number of questions on Slido. I've got one here, but there's, there's a number of overlapping ones, which are, uh, I think, really for Claudine and Gaia, they're sort of saying, what are the skills that you think young people most need? There's someone else is saying, I'm 18, like, what would you be pointing me towards in terms of future-proofing my future prospects? There's no one answer to this, I know. And so other people are asking, basically, digital skills are key, but lots of people don't have the hardware, as I think the point you were making, like how can you, like what do you say to them? So just give us a sense of the type of sort of advice that your organisations would be offering to that sort of person. Um, yeah, can't even remember the first question now, but um, generally speaking, um, in terms of devices, um, there are a number of uh, kind of local organisations that are trying to do work in this area. Um, so it's worth kind of looking into some of those. I think one of them that I know of I think it's called Digital Unite, I think. Yeah. Um, and, um, but libraries, libraries are really good resources. I know um, one of the ones in um, down in Lambeth where we do a lot of work um, have programmes where they kind of give devices out to the local community yeah. and things like that. So it's definitely worth tapping into kind of local resources from that perspective. Guy, how do you, when someone says, advise me, I don't know what to do, advise me on a future-proof sort of skill set that I need like how do you how do you handle that um, it, yes and and so at it, it first of all there's transferable and technical skills and absolutely digital skills are important but actually in the world in which there's a robot that cleans the robot that cleans the automated car human skills are going to be the, the most important ones um, and and often they, they're overlooked when thinking about education and, and follow-on training um, and so a way to get them is just to get out there and do stuff rather than on top of only sitting in exams so really just get exposure to um, internships or work type experiences that you can get from as early age as you can. Yeah. The best 18 year old that came to us is somebody who said, um, I'm actually not really clear about what to do. So I'm just going to stop making decisions right now. And I'm going to put up a YouTube video that's going to tell the world what I'm interested in, what I'm good at. And I'm going to keep this as a journal every Wednesday that goes out. And I want people to give me ideas about what's the right <laughs> job for me and what's education for me. I thought that was brilliant. Enterprise. <laughs> Crowdfunding ideas, crowdsourcing ideas for your education. Very good. <laughs> just quickly on that as well, um, on the, that soft versus technical, I think actually the key thing is looking at those softer skills, right? 
right? The fusion skills. Sure. So if you can put yourself in a position where you are adaptable, creative, resilient, those types of things, um, you're going to be in a really good position to future-proof yourself. And so linked to what you were saying, getting out there and, and trying new things, but that doesn't have to be in a work context. Not everyone has access to work experience. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, kind of getting out there, trying new things, mixing with different people um, and just throwing yourself into, into different opportunities and experiences where you can then articulate how those skills are transferred. Great. Thank you, Claudine. And finally, Helen, there's a question for you. Someone liked what you were saying on securing good work, but what about access to professional networks is something which is important to consider? Hugely important. Um, and I think uh, that's the beauty of uh, work experience, essentially, starting off <clears throat> with uh, work experience and building up those networks, working with people uh, to do that. I think there are also um, a number of sort of schools and further education colleges that, that will, will do that if you, if you ask. Um, but it is absolutely uh, so pivotal, I think, to making progress. Um, somebody who uh, knows you well enough or gets to know you well enough uh, to, to work out, uh, to give you advice really on what you're doing well, where you, you could be heading uh, is absolutely key. So a really good idea. Great. Um, I was gonna, gonna, about to bring things to a head, but uh, there's a gentleman at the back who's got a burning question, I can tell. Has anyone else got a question in the room? Keeping everyone from yeah. leaving, sorry. David Hinton from Catch22. Um, there's a lot of, lot of new technologies we hear about out there all the time, you know, blockchain, AR, VR, all types of machine learning stuff coming forward. What are you most excited about in terms of being able to address some of the challenges that young people face in the labour market? Great. Thank you. Last offerings for questions? No, okay. So what sort of tech are you excited about or not excited about? What are the... What, well, what I mean, what? I'm biased. I'm excited about career. So yeah. <laughs> we're doing a lot of AI and machine learning type, type work. Um, I think there's a lot of... Um, I, I'm quite excited about kind of the AR piece um, and, and the VR world as well, particularly when it comes to giving people opportunities to um, develop work experiences. Um, it, yeah, in a kind of, um, yeah, superficial environment. We are incredibly excited about all of that you said, but actually we're, we're working with graph knowledge databases that really help us to provide um, nuanced understanding about affinities between skills and jobs with which you can do a lot of exciting stuff that you can ask Gerald during the break. He's better placed to answer this than I am. Um, and also machine learning, yes but when um, combined with a good understanding about A, its ethical implications, and B, actually the behavioral science that you need to build into it. So the last thing we want to do is reinforce with our algorithms uh, biases in the job market, specific pathways that already exist and actually are not working really well. Um, and so we really need to make sure that we combine that and put all of the um, uh, um, sort of systems in place in order for us to build algos that do reinforce learning over time, but also expand our understanding of where the world of work is going, what are the trending skills, and how to then feature into the, the actual learning. Uh, and again, Gerald is the right person to ask. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Helen, what's your answer to that? Uh, I think VR is really exciting because it enables uh, the sort of human interaction uh, to be mimicked essentially. I've worked with loads of small organisations that are doing really pivotal work in sort of the one-on-one -on -one interaction with individuals and helping build that confidence. Um, 
and really understanding the, the sort of unique position that every individual is in. And I think uh, an, uh, a technology platform can mimic that using virtual reality, uh, using AI as well, to really using data to, uh, to understand where that individual is coming from and uh, really add value there. Um, I'm also really excited about marketplaces just because they are so scalable. Yeah. So linking up consumers with the providers of a service. Uh, and I think that there are very few in this area at the moment. And um, I think it, it could be hugely exciting. Great. Well, that's an upbeat note. Um, I don't want to keep you from your uh, spring evening. So we're going to uh, bring things to a close. I want to say a massive thank you to our speakers, um, all of whom I thought were great. It gave us a huge amount of insight. Um, I hope it just gives you a flavour as to why we at the Foundation are so keen to sort of to try moving into this space of supporting people actually doing things to help uh, people in the labour market. Um, you know, what, what you've heard from Claudine and from Guy are, are kind of people who, like we met, first met, it was a while ago now actually, before I first met both of you, but you, we kind of knew these were people with an idea, uh, values which kind of meant that they were focused on people who weren't being well served by the current setup, um, real energy and a desire to build a team and to build something which could be taken to scale. Um, in a space where policy has struggled for a long time to make a difference, yet there is real potential to make a difference, not least because data and tech have opened up possibilities which weren't there uh, not so long ago. So it's an exciting space where you can make a real difference and achieve impact, where there are people uh, who've got ambition to make a difference, uh, but we can only do that if we have the capital and expertise uh, to make, to sort of, to support people like that. And that's why we're also so grateful to our partners and our work attack programme, not least UFI, Helen, thank you. Um, because we're all trying this out because it feels like there's a need to grow these approaches. Um, we don't have all the answers. Even, even you two don't have all the answers, but we're pretty sure that this is the right way of going about finding better answers. So that's why we're doing what we're doing. We need ideas, we need new people coming forward. We have a programme with another partner of ours, Bethnal Green Ventures, who's an accelerator. They help develop people with early stage ideas um, in this worker tech space. So we've got slots on that accelerator programme. We need people to apply. If anyone in the room or watching online has got a great idea, you've got about, there's about three weeks or so, I think. Is that right, Louise? Yeah. To apply in the current round. If you know other people who might have ideas, tell them about it. We kind of we're, 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 we have real energy for this, and we need the word to be spread. So please help us uh, with that cause. Uh, thanks to all of you for coming along, uh, whether you're at home or whether you're here. Uh, and that is it from as the Resolution Foundation. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Resolution Foundation event. You can find more episodes and the latest living standards research on the Resolution Foundation website.